Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. I'm speaking this week with James Sobak, Director of Sustainability and Hospitality Advisory for Omni WX, a firm pushing the edge of the work from anywhere culture. It's safe to say that thanks to COVID, work will never be the same. What it will ultimately look like is anyone's guess. For decades, creating efficient yet pleasant workspaces have been the subject of some debate. Finding that balance between efficiency and comfort is not always easy. More often than not, available space and design features are the result of limited budgets and doing what the boss wants, while all the while claiming to have the employee's best interests at heart. These days, words like engagement and productivity are bandied about, words that are measured. In order to increase the two, you need to find ways of motivating and inspiring the workforce. To this end, companies have experimented with open architecture, free drinks and snacks, adding a ping-pong table or creating lounging areas. All fine attempts, but still mostly determined by the culture or the preference of the powers that be. In the world of Work 2.0, something's got to give. My guests suggest that employee-centric workspaces are a good first step. We'll get to it, but first, a word about our sponsor, Quilt AI a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. James Sobek, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Thank you. We're going to talk about employees and employees in the context of the space within which they work. Um, Before we go there, a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Steve. So I've um, been here in Singapore for almost nine years, but actually I've been in Asia for 20 plus. Background in hospitality, started out in hotels on the island of Saipan and then moved to uh, Hyatt in Tokyo before moving into Goldman Sachs about 14 years ago. And I'm just coming out of Goldman now um, and starting a workplace consultancy company, as well as a sustainability company with a couple of partners in London and here in Singapore. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. So, so let's, let's break it down. Um, first of all, uh, let's start with this. Um, how has thinking about the modern workplace evolved over the past 30 years? So really, if you think back uh, over the past 30 years, you see a major transformation in the overall workplace, really coinciding with technology. Um, Technology has had a huge part in the change and the evolution of workplace as well. All the way back to the 1990s, when you have the birth of uh, companies like Google, you had BlackBerry, uh, really empowering a mobile workforce uh, much more than before. But it was really the 2000s when the major transformations start to take place um, and where you see tech companies coming to the forefront. You had the first millennials starting to join the the organizations as well. Uh, And you see uh, dress down, work attire, becoming more casual, telecommuting, co-working, all of that starts in the 2000s. Uh, And we start to see open plan office spaces um, where executives actually started to sit on the floor as well, uh, as opposed to in the ivory tower in the offices. Um, and then you see the things in terms of the workplace enabling better connectivity start to come in, such as video conferencing as well. Um, but it wasn't really until the 2010s that you see additional uh, step change in terms of the evolution of the workplace where you have cool offices coming into fruition, driven largely by tech and design firms. 
the trend of highly designed, bright, and vibrant offices with a mix of different spaces uh, to work evolved, bringing to life the concept of breakout space and collaboration zones. Um, you hear terms like activity-based working, um, agile working systems becoming commonplace. Uh, basically, offices become a place where people wanted to spend time and forge a deeper relationship with their brand and work culture. So, so would you say, in some ways, office space reflects our times? Absolutely, and I think you're going to see that here in the next uh, few years as companies, every single company is talking about workplace, how to handle workplace, how do our employees, be it in a hybrid environment, work from home environment, or back in the office environment, how does that uh, workplace really uh, foster uh, the culture of company and ultimately the success of a company? And, and that's kind of why we're here, James, right, is just to talk about what's happened during this COVID era. Um, all of a sudden, people were just uprooted, um, forced out, if you will, of their workplace, um, forced to work from home, uh, starting to come to terms with that, what that meant, juggling all the different responsibilities and issues and families and noise, um, not having a, a workable desk, not having the right technology at their at their at their uh, their beck and call, and and now what you're hearing from uh, senior leaders and executives is that people are suffering. They're suffering um, in terms of their physical and emotional well-being. Uh, their productivity is collapsing. A lot of people are deciding, I don't know what you know how to collaborate in a virtual world. And all of these issues are spiraling to such a degree where employers are now very concerned at all levels across all industries that if they don't think about the future of workspace, they're going to jeopardize the possibility of bringing employees back in an effective and thoughtful way. Are you hearing these things? And, and, and let's talk a little bit about what the implications are. Well, I mean, I think firstly, I would actually say that some executives, and I was having this conference yes, yesterday with a CEO based in London, that he felt that his productivity has gone up, mm. uh, but more so because the teams are actually performing under duress and just trying to get through the day, and so they're actually delivering. However, um, the flip side of that coin is that um, the dynamics of this dispersed workforce do not allow for much innovation mm -hmm. and really people to uh, bring the organization forward. I think the, the term he used was work from home doesn't drive new, right? And so absolutely we're seeing that um, you know, challenges with trying to handle individuals uh, in terms of their own psychology, uh, in terms of how they collaborate with others, how do you get it done in that um, sort of remote, dispersed environment is absolutely a challenge. So how does space equate with innovation in, in, in a physical environment? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of pre-pandemic studies that really showed that uh, the type of work typology, if you will, or workspace typology that you leveraged in a workplace would have a big impact on the actual outputs uh, of, of individuals and teams. You know, it goes back to some of the human cognition uh, type studies that have been done that really, um, you know, look at how is it that people learn, how is it people uh, collaborate together. And so I think uh, one of the best examples that we could use in some of the work that Google was doing with Dr. Lieberman, really talking about the whole workplace experience and the fact that um, teams that actually went through similar experiences together, uh, the term is a neural synchrony, uh, which essentially means that if you experience something in similar ways as another person or group, then you will see uh, show great synchrony with each other. And ultimately that's meaning bonding. Right. And so that way, if you can actually have teams that are bonding, then you actually see that they actually um, uh, can produce much better effects. And then to answer your question specifically, though, 
really the workplace can foster that through different types of work settings where people can actually have these um, casual collisions in the, in the coffee area or essentially just have breakout areas where people can actually collaborate. So we do see that typology can have an impact on. on. So, so we were seeing even before COVID, um, the idea of office workspace was scientific-based and data-driven. So in other words, organizations like Google were saying, as we get people in different spaces, what type of impact does that have? What kind of results do we get? If we tweak it and we shape the room differently, or if we put people in smaller groups, or if we have breakout opportunities, you're going to get a different result. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And and I would actually draw to two specific standards that are out there. Uh, one is called the well building standard. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but essentially it's a standard that came out in uh, 2013 out of New York. But it's, it's a new uh, standard that really focuses on the human-centric design and, and how that then translates to the operation uh, in terms of uh, looking at various dimensions of air, uh, water, light, nourishment, comfort, fitness, and mind. And there's a hundred specific standards um, that, are, that need to be met uh, to be a, a platinum organization. But essentially, uh, what they're saying is that if you have various elements and really thinking about how people are, are uh, what's the light in the environment or what is the temperature in the environment, what's the humidity in the environment, these can have big impacts on your cognitive function. So not all people respond the same to the same environment. Some like more of a tropical or warmer, some like a colder and a more controlled. How do you accommodate for large groups? Um, It it sounds a little bit like aesthetic hopscotch here. Like you're kind of bounding over some of these ideas without really getting getting to the heart of what specific organizations with specific workforces are looking for. Well, I, I would say, you know, the number one complaint uh, for facilities management uh, in the workforce is it's too cold or it's too hot, for sure. So I, I don't think that's ever going to be solved. But but you can actually create zones in, in your office, right? So close to the windows, maybe a little bit uh, warmer, all the way into the core, maybe a little bit colder, so people can actually, uh, you know, find their right uh, temperature environment. And likewise, you can actually do that with noise, right? So noise is one of the bigger issues in workplace productivity, where if it's uh, too noisy or too quiet, you can actually have negative impacts on work productivity, whereas if it's well-designed, well-done, again, with a range, then you can actually see productivity um, increases. Is the end game productivity at all cost? Is, is that why companies do this? Or are you, do you believe that, um, particularly in this day and age, now it's a retention or an attraction strategy? Uh, the productivity uh, question has always been out there, but it absolutely is now translating into, well, what's our total cost as it relates to workplace plus human capital, right? You have, in most corporations, you'll have a bifurcation, you'll have a difference between your real estate lead and you'll have your HR lead. But in reality, when they come together is when you harness the power of seeing what's our true cost as an organization uh, and the importance of workplace uh, on that uh, total equation through impacting the HR costs is real. I I don't think I've personally encountered HR ever having so much control as to the cost of the infrastructure that's being designed on behalf of the employees. Is that changing? And if so, what's driving that change where HR is taking a stronger position? HR ultimately has a huge impact on the culture of a workplace. And I think um, part of uh, most discussions that are taking place today are really about what is the cultural element of our workplace, 
what, what are you there to do? Are you there just to produce? Or are you there to learn and grow and therefore help the organization to grow? Uh, and so HR directors now are really trying to look at all the different levers that they can pull to maximize uh, workforce uh, sort of overall, um, minimize attrition rates, uh, maximize the tenure for people, and really doing that through a vibrant workplace is, is becoming more and more uh, important. Mm. A lot of conversation around this high rent town is consolidation. Um, we're going to go from three floors to one floor. We're going to, you know, create more avenues for people to re- to work remotely to make their choices about where they go. Others are saying it's a absolute perfect opportunity to fundamentally redesign the office space in order to attract people back in. What are you seeing uh, at this point? And, you know, what would be your um, advice based on the type of organizations that are looking to make these changes? Well, I think firstly, you have to take a, take a bit of a step back, right? If you're, if you're an executive, don't um, fall into the trap of acting too quickly and too rashly for fear of therefore needing more space uh, because you've gotten rid of all of your space, right? So really, I don't think, uh, and you can look at the surveys globally or any of the actual um, indicators globally, but the, work, the return to the office is still yet to be fully fleshed out in terms of what that's going to look like, how is the hybrid environment going to be, uh, going forward, but there will be an element of hybrid uh, for sure in most corporations. Uh, and so ultimately, the, the the view that we're taking is take a step back and understand what is happening in your employees in their specific location uh, before you make any rash decisions about um, downsizing, I would say. Now, as it relates to retooling your workplace, that is where you see a lot of activity happening right now to create these uh, living labs. As a matter of fact, we're in discussion with clients who are trying to understand well, what is it that they can do from a real estate space um, in terms of creating that workspace that's going to be appealing for people to come back in. You, you refer to it as living lab? Living labs is, uh, is one of the discussions we're having. So that's sort of the nomenclature that one of the companies is using. And what, what is, exactly does that so mean? Living lab is ultimately meaning, so if you create different types of furniture, different types of locations with different lighting, different uh, ambient sounds, whatever it may be, and then try to see how people like it, um, then go through that proof of concept and then move on. Right. Oh, so it's a way of testing the waters before you commit. Absolutely. That's okay. Right. And this is the so after you run it for a while, do people like it? You get the feedback. It's is, is it a corner of the office or is it like a separate um, um, facility or how do you do that? So uh, some companies are taking a whole floor, right? To, okay. to your point about well, rather than just downsize, maybe they can't get out of their lease so quickly. They'll look at to, to try to leverage that space uh, in one way or another. Also, you think about it, it's it's a way of engaging you know, employees, saying, hey, you are part of the actual equation. And you're an important part of the, you're a critical part of the equation. We want to hear from you. And so therefore, it's a, it's a way to demonstrate we're trying something new to really try to, to, to listen to what your feedback is. Um, so therefore, we can go forward together. You know, so for so, for so many companies, um, people are the largest single cost followed by real estate. And and if you think about it, and you've got a lot of you know financial folks that are now looking at very difficult times, you can see them getting out that red pen and scratching away and looking for ways of reducing costs. But I'm hearing you say that there has never been a more important time to start to cater to the interests and needs of employees. And the one thing you don't want to sacrifice is the quality of the workspace. 
That is correct. Yeah. So if you look at the opportunity really in front of executives is to re is to have a white sheet of paper right now, a blank sheet of paper and figure out what is it they can do to move their organization forward. Now, I don't believe that the carte blanche approach to spending money is is, is the right way to go. And there and, um, that definitely will be a limited opportunity there. However, there's many things you can do without actually spending money, right? This whole proof of concept, um, the living lab concept, which I just mentioned, is absolutely the way that you can go. Um, the other is really to engage your employees and try to understand um, what makes their work life uh, productive, right? And that goes down to what type of uh, workforce do you have? Uh, and so there's a couple of companies that really do a lot of uh, excellent engagement, one of which is called Leesman, they're based out of the UK. And part of their work is purely looking at the employee workforce. And first, what they're trying to do is really try to understand, well, what type of workforce do you have? They have four different types of typologies, you know, someone who just sits there all day versus someone who is highly mobile, sales type people who are constantly on the go um, and try to map your organization that way. And then they then look at, all right, well, what is that existing workplace? How do those typologies fit in terms of how do they feel they're, they're supported in their activities? Um, and then what do they feel about the, the actual effort of the corporation? Are they proud to work for that corporation? Um, the other key metric that they have is um, how, how likely are they to bring clients or family or friends to that workplace? And so I would uh, recommend that corporations, along with looking at the real estate, really try to study their people and make a concerted effort to try to marry the two uh, in terms of workplace and their people uh, then you'll have sort of the sweet spot, if you will, in terms of what that next step is. Yeah, it sounds like we're moving past design into mapping. You've got this uh, direct affiliation and association between what the way the workflow and movement and requirements against the output, which is the design, so that you're not saying just because the boss likes the color blue, we're going with blue. We're saying what employees need in order to function most effectively and be happy and satisfied in that environment as well. There's definitely a psychological quotient here, which I think is entering in, which feels new to me. Am, am I getting that? No, absolutely. I think the ultimately it really depends upon the engagement of your employees. Engaged employees will deliver more uh, at the bottom line. And I think that is, or they'll be dedicated to your organization for a much longer period, or they'll, they'll f go with the flow if there's more disruptive change coming because they see a work, uh, an employer that is committed to them as individuals. Yeah. And you can demonstrate that through workplace policies, but also your workplace itself will demonstrate and, and more and more as sustainability is coming, you can actually demonstrate your sustainability and engagement through your workplace itself. And that brings us to this corporate purpose agenda. One of the stakeholder groups is clearly employees. And a lot of organizations are trying to understand, just like treating or managing the environment or working with uh, customers or improving the way they function with communities, they also need to rethink and revision their relationship with their employees. This sounds to me like one of those things they could do where both benefit without comprom compromising or sacrificing profit or performance. I, I would say a uh, caution, though, there's a, there's a bit of a, a uh, sort of a double-edged sword, if you will, if you think about creating an amazing workforce, a workplace where people feel they need to come back to, right? So it needs to be balanced. You have a great workplace, but that doesn't mean that you have to be there to be successful within the com company, particularly post-COVID, right? Pre-COVID, you could have a different argument, but post-COVID, it's more about how do people su uh, succeed within an organization? How does your workplace um, 
add into that equation, but you got to be careful where you find that some employees feel they're compelled to come back or they're not going to succeed. So you have to foster a good environment, again, going back to sort of the, the triumvirate of real estate, HR, and tech, and enabling both uh, a hybrid remote workforce, but also having a compelling uh, workforce to come, a workplace to come back to. You know, you, you've mentioned Google and, and, and Goldman and others. I mean, the, the well-heeled and, and highly wealthy and high-performing organizations may be able to afford to do this. But what about your run-of-the-mill, you know, small, medium-sized enterprise? Is it equally important or by virtue of being smaller, do they have more connectivity to their, their colleagues and therefore may not require such an uh, such investment or level of investments in, in the design of the of the workplace? I think the, the you're right. It's not uh, about spending an enormous amount of money on your workplace. Uh, it, particularly what we're seeing uh, these days is creating a cultural space. Um, and post-COVID, they're seeing a lot of data where people want to have that social interaction. So making sure at least your workplace has the right spatial relationship between a desk and relaxing and taking a break type of locations. Then you feed that and you activate that environment with interesting social programs. It could be community involvement. It doesn't take a lot of money. It just takes thoughts and detail and purpose uh, to activate your workplace. You can see how there might be a competition that breaks out between um, physical health, like, you know, high, you know, walls around people and one meter apart or six meters apart um, so that everyone's trying to be placed in a safe space virtue, versus uh, the idea of having aesthetically important or or psychologically effective spaces which encourage collaboration. You know, there's going to be competing factions within an organization, isn't there? How, how would you advise breaching that? And what would the kind of approaches be in order to make sure that you're not creating an overkill with the health and safety piece? Well, health and safety is going to be critical, right? And so this goes anything from your HVAC system all the way to your water system. So, you know, you should not uh, uh, be considering to minimize the, the really the importance on health and safety. However, workplace typologies, uh, you need to have a, a range, right? So uh, from our view, it's not one size fits all. Uh, as a matter of fact, you need those focus areas because a majority of people still need to focus um, and they may or may not want to then uh, go to a large breakout area. So really what we're saying is have different types of typologies um, that are some that are really good for those focus work so you get that very quiet environment versus others where people can go to learn, to socialize, to really integrate with others. Um, that's, the, that's sort of the, the right approach. James, last question. What have we learned from co-working spaces and how might those ideas be applied in corporate settings? I think co-working spaces have been uh, very interesting. You know, if uh, I think through my uh, uh, personal time at Goldman, we, we absolutely leverage those spaces. Um, very interesting feedback on the experience uh, in a co-working space. And so you, on, the, on the one on the one hand, you have this great uh, sort of concept that, oh, you can go and you can meet and you can interact uh, with many people. But at an enterprise level, particularly coming from a banking environment, we had issues with security, data security, data privacy. Uh, we also had issues with the with the comforts level in some of these spaces because a lot of them um, may not be fit out to the right spec or same spec that you would find in some of these bigger uh, MNCs, multinationals. Um, that being said, uh, what we are expecting is that co-working will push further out into suburbs. So therefore you get a work near to home concept. Mm. Uh, and we're starting to see that in certain parts of Asia, um, not so much in, here in Singapore yet. 
uh, but uh, we do an anticipate uh, many corporations giving their employees access to these co-working spaces to be able to go and get away from home, but not necessarily have to come into the office. Uh, I think we'll see how those, uh, those spaces sort of evolve over time, but one of the benefits of those spaces is their, their sort of cultural programming that they can enable in the workplace. One on the flip side, though, if you're head of HR, then is, is it your culture that those uh, people who are going to co-working spaces are getting, or are they getting the co-working spaces culture? And so, it's, uh, you know, like I said, I think the jury's still out in terms of how, uh, how big MNCs leverage those co-working spaces. Yeah. Uh, interesting times. James, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Steve. That was my conversation with James Sobak, the Singapore-based Director of Sustainability and Hospitality Advisory for Omni WX. While our conversation revolved primarily around the growing importance of workspaces as it pertains to employee satisfaction and performance, it prompted for me a bigger question. So here it is. As employers, what do you owe your employees? I mean, think about it. Organizations, whether nonprofit or for-profit, offer a range of important and essential things. At the most fundamental level, there's the job and the opportunity to make a living wage. In most cases, it comes with benefits like healthcare and perhaps a savings plan. At the next level, there's training and development, the opportunity to collaborate with others, the chance to learn and stretch one's thinking and skill sets. And then, of course, there are the lucky few who end up in what we like to call academy organizations, those that are leaders in their field, the innovators, the game changers. They have the money, the leadership, and the chutzpah to challenge the status quo and set new standards for all those who follow. Among their ranks are the startups, think Google, and the institutions, like General Electric. They tend to attract the best and the brightest, and for good reason. Then along comes COVID. It sends everyone out of the office and back to their homes, where they find shelter from the pandemic and worry about the future while homeschooling kids and juggling personal and professional affairs. Fear and uncertainty permeate every moment of every day. No one knows what tomorrow will bring. The scenario is manageable for some and worse for others. But at some level, employees are grappling with demons, trying to manage their psychological health and wellness, and wondering, does my employer even care? It's the question being asked by anyone who's had a job and wants or needs to work. Whether you believe it's fair or not, workers by the tens of millions are feeling abandoned, waylaid, and uncared for, even while they're being overworked. Employers, meanwhile, are asking, where do my responsibilities for my employees begin and end? Companies aren't responsible for the crisis, so why should they try to fix things? Better to all suffer together, right? But that's the problem. It doesn't feel like together. It feels like we are apart all doing our own thing, yet somehow gravitationally bound to a loose-knit orbit circling a distant entity called the workplace. My conversation with James suggests that employers may be confronting this conundrum in all the wrong ways. COVID, you might say, has given birth to a new hybrid world where work happens anywhere and everywhere. It's also less about the space your employer carves out for you to do your job and more about the headspace you can achieve to allow you to do your best work in the right frame of mind. To be frank, shockingly few companies seem to be seizing upon this unique moment in time to take the modern workplace to the next level. I dare say some are stuck in the idea that the work-from-home trend is little more than an opportunity to downsize office space and pocket the savings.
Of course, that's an option, but what are you sacrificing? What if instead employers took the time and energy to revision the workplace? I'm not talking about new workstations or a makeover of the office pantry. I'm talking about a fundamental rethink on what it is that makes employees happy, engaged, and productive. If you're listening to this now and you run a business and don't think this is something worthy of your time and investment, dust off that CV. Employees want change and organizations must deliver. Blow this one and you might be the one out looking for a job. Mind you, there's no easy answer here. Surveys are showing that many employees have no interest in returning to the workplace and, given the choice, would prefer to stay and work from home. Others say they'd rather quit than go back to long commutes and uncomfortable work settings. Organizational leaders will be put to the test. Attracting and retaining top talent means crafting a new narrative for the workplace. I may be wrong, but this could prove a hallmark moment for the best leaders among us. So sit up, Pay attention and watch this space. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. And if you haven't checked out our new website, please do. There are over 180 episodes to choose from, all searchable and covering a range of topics from corporate purpose and sustainability to future tech, future economy, geopolitics, and more. Each episode posting is accompanied by our weekly newsletter. So if you prefer reading to listening, now you can do so. Our newsletter includes links to other valuable resources and insights and references to earlier episodes on related topics as well. Over the past four years, we've featured a wide range of regional thought leaders, business heads, and operational insiders. Hear what they have to say by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening.